Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to another special Ukraine war report in episode 164. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. It's now been one month since Russia invaded Ukraine. And very little about this war has gone according to what Putin had hoped for. And very little about it has been in line with what most experts predicted. And the tide seems to be turning. And now is definitely a time to stay vigilant. That sound of a Russian T-72 tank rolling down a street in Mariupol, then getting blasted by a shoulder-fired Enlaw by a Ukrainian soldier from a building window above it. An Enlaw is a next-generation light anti-tank weapon, or a main battle tank and light anti-armor weapon. It's developed in Sweden, and it's been sent to Ukraine by the UK, the United Kingdom. These are shoulder-fired tank killers. And the soldier screams from the window, Glory to the Azov Regiment, you bitch! That's the translation. Now, the Azov Regiment is a unit of the Ukrainian National Guard based in Mariupol, in the Azov Sea coastal region. The UK sent 2,000 of those NLAW systems to Ukraine before Russia invaded, and another 1,600 or so by March 9th. And at least 100 more were sent by Luxembourg. And on March 24th, the UK pledged to deliver another 6,000 NLAWs. A senior Ukrainian military officer said they were the weapon of choice for his troops, responsible for destroying roughly 30 to 40 percent of Russian tanks. NLAWs have been killing tanks left and right in Ukraine, along with the American-made Javelin. Javelins are the FGM-148 Javelin, made by Raytheon and Lockheed, and they cost about $200,000 a piece. Ready to fire, a Javelin weighs about 50 pounds. The new $800 million weapons package announced by Biden earlier this month for Ukraine includes about 2,000 javelins, along with 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems. Prior to that, the U.S. had sent about 2,600 javelins. NATO and the U.S. are pouring them in. And the Pentagon claimed this month that out of 112 javelins fired by the Ukrainians, 100 of them had hit their target. That's a damn good hit percentage. And it's why Ukrainians are all praising the power of St. Javelin. That's what they're calling it, St. Javelin. An image titled St. Javelin shows Mary Magdalene 
holding a javelin launcher in the style of an Eastern Orthodox church painting, like a baby. And it's gained traction on social media, it's on t-shirts everywhere, and it's become a major symbol of the Ukrainian resistance against the Russian invasion. You can buy the t-shirts online. So thanks to St. Javelin, it seems like Ukraine is winning. But are they? Are the Russian forces as bad as they appear? Is Putin's once-feared military the greatest overinflated paper tiger of our time? Will Kyiv be Putin's Waterloo? Or his Stalingrad? The Battle of Stalingrad took place from August 1942 to February 1943, and it was the deadliest battle of the Second World War, and one of the deadliest battles in the history of warfare. There were an estimated 2 million total casualties. The total Axis casualties for the Germans, Romanians, Italians, and Hungarians are believed to be more than 800,000 dead, wounded, missing, or captured. And on the Soviet side, official Russian military historians estimate that there were 1,100,000 Red Army dead, wounded, missing, or captured in the campaign to defend the city. And an estimated 40,000 civilians died as well. In Stalingrad, the fighting was brutal. Building to building, house to house, street to street. And Ukraine in 2022 is not Stalingrad, but it's some of the most brutal house-to-house fighting we've seen in a generation. And the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has reported a total of 1,151 civilian deaths so far and 103 children. And that number is rising by the hour. Stakes are high. Tens of millions of Ukrainian civilians are caught in an unimaginable hell that continues to unfold on this modern battlefield. Some might say Ukraine is winning. But can anyone win a war like this? We've all seen retired generals on cable news. We've all seen quick videos on social media of tanks getting blown up. But what's really happening on the battlefield in Ukraine? In this episode, we're going deeper in a way you probably haven't heard before. With a guest who knows more about the 21st century battlefield than anyone we've ever had on this show. And he doesn't just know it academically. He knows it personally. He's a returning guest, an extensively experienced combat leader, a true leader, former Navy SEAL commander, Chris Fussell. Chris Fussell is a man who knows war. Steeled by leadership roles in the most selective special operations units in the military, Chris is a leader that understands the chaos and dynamism of modern combat. He's led the most elite unit in the United States military, the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, Dev Group, and Navy SEAL Teams 2 and 8 on some of the most critical missions of our generation. Chris joined us back in March of 2020 in Episode 50, right before the pandemic exploded. And then he joined us one month later for a special dispatch on April 6, 2020. 
He analyzed and predicted how that battlefield would unfold. And he was right. And he's back. Chris spent 16 years at the tip of the spear for America's most urgent and complex national security challenges. He was an aide-de-camp to General Stanley McChrystal when he commanded the Joint Special Operations Command in Iraq. Chris teaches leadership at Yale. He speaks to packed audiences, and he coaches top leaders and companies worldwide. He's also the author of the bestsellers, Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, and One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. He's the president of the McChrystal Group, an elite advisory services management consulting and leadership development firm, and he's a former wrestler with a degree in philosophy. He's a true warrior philosopher of the highest level. He's got a Master of Arts in Irregular Warfare from the Naval Postgraduate School. And he got the Pat Tillman Award for the highest peer-rated special operations officer. He did a thesis focused on interagency collaboration and intelligence-sharing processes that drove effective cross-silo collaboration during the peak of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Chris knows modern warfare, and he's going to break down the strategic and the tactical the political, and the psychological. And almost nobody you see on TV or hear on the radio has the depth of personal experience in combat that Chris does, or the mind to pull apart what's happening beneath the headlines. War is not a game, of course. But having Chris is like having an elite, retired NFL quarterback break down the Super Bowl. And he's not just any quarterback. This is not Tony Romo. There are fewer Naval Special Warfare Development Group commanders than there are Pro Bowl quarterbacks. Chris is the most elite there is, and he's here to help us understand what we're seeing in Ukraine and what we might see next. Easy is over, especially on the battlefield, and it's getting bloodier by the day. Russian chess master Gary Kasparov said it, and I've been repeating it on this show since the war began. Easy is over, especially for Russian forces, because the tide is definitely turning, at least for now. Ilya Ponomarenenko is a defense reporter for the Kiev Independent. He's fantastic, and he's been posting incredible content from inside Ukraine since the war began. And he continues to post videos and photos of Ukrainian forces taking out Russian forces, Russian BMPs, Russian aircraft, Russian tanks. And in his Twitter bio, he describes himself as a village guy from Donbass in a crusade for something better, with a focus on war, weapons, beer, and heavy metal. The Ukrainian love for music and heavy metal is something I've talked about before. And Ilya has been posting his own version of guerrilla radio on Twitter since the war began, posting songs that capture the spirit of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian fighter. And this week he tweeted, Yes, the Ukrainian military jams Russian communication with heavy metal music. Guerrilla radio has a couple of suggestions making such a playlist even more enjoyable for defeated Russian forces leaving the Kiev area. And he tweeted this song. The heavy metal classic, Walk by Pantera. Walk was released by Pantera in 1993. 
The song is the most viewed Pantera song on YouTube in history with over 217 million views. The song was ranked number 16 on VH1's 40 Greatest Metal Songs. Walk is an anthem for a fight. You'll hear it at hockey games, football games, boxing and MMA fights. And it's a song you never forget. Pantera frontman Phil Anselmo explained the lyrics of Walk Once. He said the song was, Take your fucking attitude and take a fucking walk with that. Keep that shit away from me. That's what Walk is all about. And that's what the Ukrainian people are saying to Putin and his forces right now. Keep that shit away from me. And we all have to do everything we can to help them do that. Wartime is here. Not just for Ukraine, but for everyone who cares about freedom. And now, more than any other time, now is a time for us all to stay vigilant. We all need to help Ukraine and help ensure Putin and his forces walk. We can do that by supporting their fight. And key to supporting their fight is better understanding it. Welcome to a look inside the battlefield of Ukraine through the eyes of one of the most elite fighters America's ever produced. Welcome to another Ukraine war report. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 164. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country, around the world, inside Ukraine, inside Russia, anywhere else you can hear my voice. The war in Ukraine continues to evolve by the minute. And you've heard many perspectives, and I don't think you've heard one like the one we're going to get today. Uh, this is a man who is a returning champion, joined us at a very interesting time last time, and is joining us at a very interesting time again. A guy I'm honored to know, a guy I'm inspired uh, every time I hear him talk. The great and powerful Chris Fussell is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Paul. Great to see you again. So we were reminiscing. Uh, I'm saying welcome back because I looked it up. The last time you were with us was April 6, 2020. You were the last live interview I did before the pandemic. You remember that? I do. Yeah, I remember. Uh, remember you and I standing outside of your studio in New York and looking at the empty streets and thinking, I think this is going to be a pretty serious uh, episode here. And uh, that that was the last time I was in New York City. You uh, you you gave us, I think, a really smart warning of what was to come. And I think you and I were, you know, gaming out scenarios, and we've talked about most dangerous course of action, most likely course of action. Uh, I want to get to Ukraine. I want you to break down the battlefield. I want you to help us understand why it's going the way it does. But now that we reflect on two years of the pandemic, uh, can you give me any thoughts now that we are, you know, almost two years from when last time I spoke to you, two years after the pandemic, as that battlefield unfolded, can you give me your thoughts, analysis, reactions? Um, yeah, I mean, I I remember when you and I were talking, I mean, it was right in the front end there were maybe a couple thousand deaths in, in the u.s at that point um but you know you know i've been through enough weird stuff in our lives you could sort of see something strange coming and then i remember sharing with you a, a, an immunologist friend of mine who had said you know our early data you know um analysis says this could be quarter million to 
north of three or four hundred thousand, somewhere in that range of deaths, and could take twelve months to eighteen months to settle through. And I remember that was like shocking to us. Um, and here we are, probably end up threefold that. And you know, the normalization of this stuff has been a, a real eye opener. How people have sort of accepted this new reality in some ways that I think is very unhealthy for us as a society. Um, at the same time, we've seen some some miracles, some miracles of science, some uh, some miraculous ability of, of uh, resilience in our culture. Um, and then on the other side of that, just this massive polarization that's been very disappointing to, to watch. And, you know, all of us have fallen prey to it. Um, what what could have been a coalescing uh, event has, you know, pushed div- division further into our society here in the U.S. And some of which I would say maps directly to creating opportunity for folks like uh, Putin to take advantage of around the world. Mm. I want to go deeper on that, but I don't want to skip over a question I ask of everyone. Last time you, we were in New York together at the car club, where are you and how are you? Uh, I am. So, you, you know, this shortly after our conversation two years ago, uh, two plus years ago, my wife and I made the decision to move from from Capitol Hill uh, and in D.C. up to the beautiful mountains of West Virginia. So we've been here for about two years. So if you're on video, that's uh, that's the son of passing over the New River Gorge in West Virginia. The, the nation's newest national park is just outside of our uh, our window here. And uh, we're, we're, we're enjoying it. We're really settling into a state that we, we've been coming here for many years. We know it. We love it. Um, and really enjoying the new new approach and opportunities here in West Virginia. Um, wife and kids are doing doing great. So you're a dynamic guy. You're always ahead of what's next. And on this show, we always want to talk about not just what's happening now, but what's happening next. So I think, you know, you've always been working in a dynamic way on the battlefield, you know, in your business and now and whatever is coming. So you're, you seem like, I remember you were talking to us about how work would change, how leadership would change. And you've leaned into that personally and and professionally. Now we've got Ukraine. I think the reason I want to talk to you, Chris, is because I feel like we've heard from lots of generals. And then we've seen really narrow perspectives, but we don't have a really dynamic perspective. And you can see all sides of it based off your very unique experience. Um, Maybe let's just start at the top. You know, as we have this discussion, it looks like Ukraine is winning. It looks like Russia is losing. But give us your analysis, the big picture of Ukraine, what's happening and what it means globally. And then I want to go down to more granular and tactical stuff. But give us your thoughts on, on the big picture of where we are and where this may be going. Yeah, I, maybe I just first react and, I, you know, like yourself, had a bunch of countless of these conversations the last few weeks. Um, and the one caveat I always try to put in, um, and we can dive into this a bit and then go go wherever you want. But I think the we've we've done ourselves a disservice in the U.S. in the way over the last several generations, really, but especially in the last 20 years, when we put when we frame things like this inside of winning and losing. Right. Um we, and you and I both lived this, right? We, we dealt with this. We did this to ourselves in Iraq and Afghanistan um, because, you know, we kept looking for winning. Have we won yet in Afghanistan? Did we win in Iraq? Um, who's winning in the Ukraine? And I don't, conflict at that level, um, you know, nations are in relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. And saying, did we win in Afghanistan or are the, is Putin going to win in Ukraine is like saying, am I going to win at raising my kids? Mm. 
you know, I just have a relationship with them. I have good days and bad days. Um, but if, there's not a time when I'm be like, I won, <laughs> you know, and they, we look at things like that in these very complex relationships. Putin has made some serious errors, in my opinion. He's messed up that relationship, both with the Ukraine, the Ukrainian population, neighboring states, the world, et cetera. Um, but neither side is really going to win. It's going to transition into another stage. And we want to help them get to that next stage as fast as possible. Um, and so, I, I mean, you can beat this point up for, for a while, but I do think it's important because it changes our mindset. We start to look for, um, you know, by April 27th, we will have won. Mm. Well, that's not true. It's, you know, by April 27th of 2035, we won't have won. It'll be in a much different position, hopefully. And how do we help them navigate towards that? But you have to look at these things in such a longer and different perspective, much like you would relationships with friends and family. I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it. I, I appreciate that you're bringing that perspective because it's not, again, it's not one we're really hearing. Um, and especially, you know, the cable news chatter kind of treats it like a scoreboard. How many tanks are down? How many chips are here? It's like some kind of, you know, broadcast game of, of risk in 2022. But as we go onto the actual battlefield, let's just use that, right? If you're a retired quarterback, you know, that played at the very highest level possible, you're watching the game unfold. And I don't mean to call it a game. You know what I mean? But you have a very unique perspective on the battlefield um, that maybe other folks don't see or don't know. What do you see on the battlefield? Um, yeah, a few things. I'd, I'd start with, uh, again, for your, for your listeners, you know, I was in the, the SEAL team. So small specialized units, um, which live on one end of the spectrum where, you know, very capable, much larger forces like you were part of, like conventional units, et cetera. We all live on this spectrum, but, um, you know, like you and I both lived, you, you immerse with some, with each other one enough, uh, enough on the battlefield where you understand sort of broad perspective. And so from that lens, one of the first things that jumped out at me was, um, the decision to cross the border, I was surprised by completely. My, I thought there's there's like eight wins that Putin gets out of getting to the border, forcing the conversation and then backing down and saying he never meant to. I don't know why everybody overreacted. Right. And so the crossing into the country seemed like a, a strange decision. Um, I didn't see a lot of ways he won there. Uh, but then the, the first thing that jumped out was he sort of fell into the dictator autocrat trap of getting clearly really bad intelligence from his frontline, you know, majors and, and colonels on their, their readiness, right? Um, and, and, you know, in systems like that, we saw the same thing in Iraq with Saddam having bad internal intelligence on his capabilities. Um, you know, if, if, if you're going to be in a lot of trouble with an autocrat as a, a military officer by saying your tanks aren't ready, you're going you're gonna to say they're good, right? So he was probably suffering from some of that. He also probably cared less about their capability and losses than, than other countries would. Um, again, an, a, a trap that autocrats fall into. Um, but he got pretty exposed very quickly, right? Um, you know, there's this saying in, in uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan was this Navy theorist strategist. And um, one of his best known theories was the fleet in being. Like you're, you're better off with your, your naval fleet existing in a harbor than you are taking out to sea and proving that it's not very capable. And so he sort of broke this. Um, and I say, you know, his, the collective Russian forces broke this sort of key point of strategy. Now he's, he looks rather exposed. 
He also went in with small numbers, you know, the, the population size of Ukraine to go in with, you know, less than just under 200,000 troops, um, 20 to 25% of which are conscripts. And, you know, for listeners that don't, aren't aware, I mean, conscripts in, in, around the world, these are like, they're, they're kids, you know, it's like an 18 year old kid who's maybe got, you know, a couple of weeks of training. It, and that I'm sure they're taking the bulk of the losses. It's like conscripts and generals that are getting killed over there, um, which is again, just its own little mini humanitarian crisis that, that, that kids like that are being thrown to the front lines for no reason. But um, small numbers, less capable force, immediately exposed. Um, those are the things that jumped out at me very quickly. Coupled with, obviously, he thought it was going to be low resistance. Um, otherwise, why would you do it the way they did it? Um, and it wasn't. You know, the Ukrainian people are tough. They didn't want to uh, be occupied. God bless them for the resistance they put up. And, you know, Putin knows Ukrainian history. That's a that's a tough, tough crowd, right? Mm-hmm. And they've been through hard times before. They can suffer. And they turned it on. And, you know, obviously, uh, Putin and, and the, his forces are, are paying the price for it. Um, so I guess overarching my 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 response was has been a series of surprises. Like I've been mm. surprised that they crossed the border, surprised that he thought that, that his units were more capable than they were, and then happily surprised by the 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 will and strength of resistance from the Ukrainian people. Mm. I want to maybe start and go down. And let me ask you, there's been a lot made of I don't know what they're up to now, seven general generals killed so far. Maybe it's more by the time we record this. Can you talk about that? What does it reveal? How much does it matter? Um, it, it, how much you, and it by the way, just sorry, before I get you that, you were an 06. So you were just below a general in the U.S. military. So you're one level below a general. And, and to set the context here, I don't know if we lost any generals in post 9-11. Maybe, um, I, don't, I don't think any. No, two, uh, I was two levels. So I was in a 05. Okay. Sorry, 05. Correction. Thank you. But, Thank you. But worked around the general's on staffs and stuff. And so, yeah, I think we lost one in a, like, but it was an, an accident, helicopter accident. Yeah. Um, you know, you had the occasional general that was wounded here and there, you know, being out with their frontline folks. Um, but yeah, it's rare. And that, that goes back to throughout history. I think what it, the biggest thing that it shows us is um, the, the Russian military isn't that experienced. Um, neither were we on 9-11, right? That's not like a condemnation. You and I both know, like, you can train all you want uh, at some big training ground, and then you get shot at, and that's a totally different type of real training, right? You learn much faster in those circumstances. The U.S. military is really good, as are, you know, some of the allies we worked with so closely over the last 20 years, um, because we've been through 20 years of combat, which is not a great, uh, a great reality, but it does make your army really good, right? Um, and Russia just hasn't had that. They've got you know, very limited number of folks that, that have real combat experience, some of which have promoted up to the general officer level. And so my assumption is they're in the back of the these big convoys that are pushing in. Their comms are probably terrible. Like I, I'm guessing the, you know, the intricacies of uh, it all. It's not like it looks in the movies, right? Some kid in a, in a, a tank or a, a vehicle way up in the front of the convoy, his radio battery dies because he doesn't know how to keep it keep the batteries stored in cold weather and suddenly can't talk to anybody and the whole convoy shuts down, et cetera, et cetera. And now you've got some general in the back who actually knows what they've got to get done because he's the only person talking back to headquarters. And he probably hops in a Jeep and like, I got to drive up there and see what the hell's going on. And the Ukrainian sniper's like, oh, good, look, an old gray haired guy. And you lose a general, right? I'm, I'm guessing it is mostly just practical interaction between those big movements 
because they don't have the sophisticated infrastructure to talk to one another. They haven't been, done big movements like that, um, especially under fire. And so it turns into a bit of a cluster, right? And so generals go up and try to sort it out and they're great targets of opportunity. Um, but, but mostly it exposes like, so to your point, like, does it mean the leadership is, you know, there's probably seven more generals waiting to fill that role, but it does demonstrate to the world that level of like, just it's turned into a big cluster. And now their senior most guys are in the position of having to sort it out, which is not ideal. And you, I assume, have trained alongside Ukrainians or fought alongside Ukrainians at some point, maybe in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, can you talk about their fighting capacity, what you've seen? And, and in particular, I think there's been a lot made of of javelins and stingers. Can you talk about those, like put color on it, explain what they are, how they work, why they're significant? Um, yeah. I didn't work closely with Ukrainians and you knew the fights, I mean, they were, you know, like rubbed shoulders a little bit, but um, back in the peacetime, like there, we had a lot of interaction just in training operations and stuff over, over in Europe and they had a, a great reputation. Um, you know, rightfully so, like as I was saying a moment ago, just a hard, a hard population that's been through a lot over, over many generations. Um, and that creates a grit and resilience that's hard to, uh, to match. And, you know, now living in West Virginia, I've had conversations just with friends here that were there without military experience. I'm like, are you surprised by the, you know, the, the local population being able to fend off the, the, the Russians? And honestly, I'm like, and I, what I'll tell my friends here is, you know, you, you could send the 82nd Airborne into West Virginia and they wouldn't be able to take it over, right? It would stay here as long as it, and I say that in all honesty, my 82nd Airborne friends can yell at me, right? It would win every battle. And it would it would control the terrain as long as it stayed here, but you're not going to break the will of the West Virginia people. Like mm-hmm. I said before, it's it would it would be a relationship, and just like we found in Afghanistan, like they've got the staying power, right? And if I've learned anything, like I'm sure you would say as well, the last 20 years, it's bet on the people with a reason to fight. Mm-hmm. You know, compare the the 30 year old parent living in, you know. Kiev with the 20 year old conscript who thought he was going to an exercise mm. who's got the will to fight. Right. So you're, you're not going to break that, that sort of will to, to defend your homeland and history just shows, shows that time and again. Right. And so they, they've got all that in, in orders of magnitude more than the, the invading and occupying force. And then you leverage on top of that, to your point, like this technology, tech imbalance, right? It, it, and, you know, for those that haven't been out there, you can talk about any specific weapon system, but the broader uh, way I think of it is um, for those that haven't seen it, like there's a, if you can get that mismatch shored up and and here we're supporting the, the defending population and, and force, um, there's, you know, you can get into this sort of order of magnitude difference in, in capabilities, right? And And the Russians are using you know, untested soldiers with untested equipment and, and, and you know, logistics on the ground um, and realizing, wow, there's there's technology that can will can will flood across the border for as long as we want to stay stay engaged here. That is a mismatch with the capability that w- we've brought into the country. So we've got what we thought was a great tank, but um, this this javelin is much better than it is. Right. And and oh, my gosh, you know, that wasn't here two weeks ago, that weapon system. So clearly somewhere along the border, there's an exchange happening. There's some sort of training taking place that, you know, I can do the math, like the weapon wasn't here. Now it is, and it was just used very effectively. So that training was probably like 
a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty simple system to teach a fighter how to use and just took out one of my tanks. And I can count the number of tanks I have. I have no idea how many javelins they're willing to flood into this country mm. as one of you know, any, any number of examples. Um, now that said, that, that mismatch isn't unusual. You know, um, I'm sure you, you crossed the border into Iraq in a thin-skinned Humvee, right? They probably had like canvas doors. And we really quickly learned, hey, there's a mismatch here, right? There's less technical weapons, but they can shred through these vehicles. And so what did you do? I'm sure you're, you know, Private Smith was out, you know, bolting steel onto the side of your Humvee to try to keep from getting blown up, right? There's there's Russians doing the same thing right now, getting creative, um, you know, because you adapt very quickly under the pressure of combat and they're going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But we have this, you know, rather than we're not flooding like IED makers in to support the Ukrainians, we're flooding in some of the best weapon systems the world's ever known. And, and giving them this asymmetric advantage. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it feels like it, that that the the javelins on this battlefield are what IEDs became on our battlefield, but on steroids and so much quicker, right? I mean, you don't even have to make a, a javelin, right? You could hand somebody a javelin. You don't have to create IED factories like we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they're so much more devastating, so much more consistent, so much more prolific that, you know, if you're a Russian tanker, you know, a, a javelin is your worst nightmare in the same way an IED was for every one of us in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm, and I'm glad you, you put a point on that in that way, um, because it, it seems to be so clearly shifting the battlefield, but also shifting morale. Right on both sides, um, you know the guys. You know, they're already the shirts. You know, praise to Saint Javelin, right? That we see all over the place, and it's got to be a nightmare for the Russians. Given your your special operations world experience, as much as you're able, Chris, can you evaluate on any level being this far away how the special operations units for Ukraine and Russia have done? We heard a lot about Russian special forces, and it, it may be hard to evaluate right now, but it doesn't look like they were the difference maker we were anticipating. But can you on any level evaluate both sides of that that part of this? Um, first, a comment on like the Javelin ID comparison, and then circle back to that. The yeah. It's, I think it's a good one, um, but just for your broader listeners, really what you're trying to do is create this, like, some type of asymmetry, right? Um, where, and you're looking for, you're looking for, to offer solutions that find the seams inside of your, your opposition sort of plan, right? And so for us, um, they're, the best technologically enabled military in the world, right? But what they found was, well, what's the weakness on that vehicle, right? The side of it's thin. So let's let's come up with cheap devices that can blow the door off and like kill the person driving it, right? And then we can attack the convoy. So we've changed that. We've changed their plan by finding non-obvious uh, sort of chinks in the armor. Um, but to your point, improvised explosives devices and vehicle-borne VBIDs and all these other things that started to evolve. Um, you can't box those up, put them in the border and just like distribute them, right? So the logistics, it's not as capable of a weapons system, you know, it's sort of this homegrown up device and they got more advanced, of course. Um, and, but to your point, they had to create factories and get demolition in there. And it's a very complex supply chain and not easy to execute. And then the person that's going out to do it has to like run a wire or set it all up. Da, 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 da. And so those were days and weeks long operations sometimes. Um, 
where this is just, you know, the Russians are smart enough to go, okay, that, that took them like five days to figure out. And this is going to go on for, for quite a while. So it is, it's a similar sort of imbalance, but a much more sophisticated game. Um, on the special operations side, honestly, I, I would be completely uh, just guessing at this point. I, I really look forward to seeing some of the, the reports that come out um, once this all sort of starts to, to settle. Um, my read from the outside is that the majority of the resistance is coming from, you know, just a, a dedicated army on the Ukrainian side, plus sort of activated civilians that are getting in, in, engaged in, in the conflict. Um, and I'm sure they, I'm assuming they've distributed their most uh, capable and experienced fighters across to get people up to speed. And what I would assume, like there's probably some specialized units that are doing specialized things, right? But it doesn't, it, it's not yet a series of like uh, raids or things where you can clearly say, oh, that's, they, they blew up like these uh, four headquarters within 24 hours. So some sort of specialized unit came up with that, right? Um, on the Russian side, again, haven't, haven't seen much that's come across my radar. Aside from the initial push where there was, you know, some of, um, some of the reports of heavy casualties with some of their lighter units right out of the gates. Um, again, the history books will, will say how accurate that, that is. Um, but my, my sense was, and this could be completely wrong, but if Putin thought this is gonna be you know, light and fast and low resistance, I'm gonna send in some of my shock troops that are all you know, 6'2", 240 uh, bodybuilders, but lightly armed and not meant to really hold ground and they don't come in heavily armored. And it'll just kind of scare the population. If the population said, I'm not really impressed, um, you know, a SEAL platoon's worst nightmare is getting pinned down by like 400 fighters without any support, right? They're not designed to do that. And so I think the Russians might have, and again, I, I've only seen light reporting on this, might have misused some of its specialized forces out of the gates with the assumption that they weren't going to get much resistance and they, and they mm -hmm. did. Chris, you're an expert on leadership. You've written books about leadership. Um, can you break down the leadership differences in the way these militaries are structured? We talk a lot about small unit tactics, about decentralized leadership. You talk about how generals in the Russian army get taken out and it creates discombobulation because they're so dependent upon those generals, right? Um, that's not the, the military that I fought in. That's especially not the units that you were in. But can you compare and contrast for the layman the real differences in the way these militaries are structured from a leadership standpoint? Yeah. Um, Napoleon had the saying that if he could fight anything, he would like if he could choose his opponent, he would fight a coalition. Um, because of all the, you know, you guys, you and I both fought within coalitions, right? It's just hard to get a coalition to, to coordinate and move together, et cetera. Um, I, I'm no Napoleon, but I would say if I was in today's world, if I was going to fight anything, I would fight an autocrat. Um, I want to fight a society that's been under autocratic rule for generations. And I think that's one of the, the differences here. Um, mm. I mean, Ukraine's clearly had its ups and downs like we all have. Um, but it has a you know a, a relatively recent history of of real independent thinking and growth and and uh, independence and you know an, an army a military a population that is comfortable and this is this is why I say it's different now in the technology age 
when we're also interconnected and all of us have access to information, et cetera. I mean, this is the first war being fought with Twitter, right? Can you imagine the amount of information that's being exchanged on the front lines through WhatsApp and Instagram accounts that are masked? And it, it, it'll just be fascinating to read how effectively the Ukrainians are using this, uh, using technology, but they're very comfortable doing that. They know like, hey, the kid who lives in that apartment building over here started this masked account and he's feeding the best information and it's going straight to other, you know, armed forces that are going to react accordingly, et cetera. Um, and that's because there's a, there's a culture that is in this together. They have a common narrative that they share around resistance to, to occupation of the Russians. And they are at the individual level, I'm making some assumptions here, but seem clearly comfortable with sort of decentralizing those authorities down to the edge of the, of the, of the, of the resistance in this case. And that's one of the keys to survival, I think, in the information age, whether you're a country, a business or an army. I'd like to fight an autocrat because they don't like that. Right. They want mm -hmm. to centrally control information. And if they've been at it long enough and their rule is considered pretty ruthless, like, you know, uh, a Putin, then the individual psyche all the way down to that, uh, you know, that general that's running out to the front line is not they're not wired for decentralization. Right. Um, so there's all sorts of different behaviors that they'll put in place rather than, well, you know, like the front line's kind of messed up right now. Like we, we, this convoy isn't working. Let's get some tech into the kids hands up there. We'll start communicating, figure out what's going on. No, no, no. I've got to run out there. I've got to give the orders and then I'm going to call back to headquarters and tell them what's going on. And then, you know, a sniper on a WhatsApp account gets a text that says, hey, there's somebody that looks like a general. Boom, I'm going to go take a shot. Right. So it's too, it's again, it's a very imbalanced approach. Mm. Um, and this, so that's kind of again, the history will tell how accurate that is. But that's kind of my sense of what I see. No, I think it's, it's a really important insight because I think about the students that I taught this fall undergrads. And there's kind of a sense that this newer generation is all kind of doing their own thing. Right. And they're not really loyal to a central organization or bureaucracy, right? They're not joiners in the same way our grandparents' generation was. And, and now we're seeing the advantage of that on a battlefield when an individual person or group of people can be self-reliant, can be self-driven, can, can, can be networked. And on the other side, you've got, you know, the toy soldiers all lined up behind one autocrat that, that when you knock out the general, it all kind of spirals apart. So I think that that insight is really, really important, Chris, because I, I don't think anybody has has summarized the overall philosophy of the country as a part of their you know strategic military weakness in the way that you have. Right. Well, and, and it's an interesting point. I would agree that that there's a generational shift. You and I were somewhere in the middle of that um, on, on, on joinerness or whatever the word for it would be. Yeah. But um, but I think at the end of the day. Humankind, we're all joiners, right? We we all uh, we all find comfort and security. You know, we are we haven't evolved that quickly, right? It wasn't that long ago that we were right. all in tribes for just survival, and so we're still wired for that. I just think the what connects with people to to what they want to join into has has shifted. Mm. Technology has obviously played a role in that, but the the underpinning thing is still around the narrative and the story, right? People mm. want to, people will join things that they believe in. And if you went back to, you know, two or three generations ago, it was harder to get a bunch of stories, right? You got the story from Walter Cronkite, you got the story from, from the president, whatever it is, and you kind of had these and your local stories and you had these easier choices to make. 
Um, now you have, you know, thousands of stories you can choose from. And the powerful narrative is what people will align with. Mm. But they're still joining something. They're joining mm. a belief. They're joining a story. They're joining a, a, a network of some sort. Um, yeah. They're just choosing that I'm, I'm not going to join the, the Democratic Party. I'm going to join this movement in, that yeah. happens to be affiliated with that party because that's that's the one that really speaks to me. And they're joining a spirit. They're joining Russian warship. Go fuck yourself. Right. <laughs> like that, that. that is in the same way we saw in this country, how people joined some of the Trump movements of, you know, fuck the man, fuck the system. You know, the government's failing with these broader narratives that can be so galvanizing, I think, if, if they're if they're broad enough and if they're invoking enough passion. I want to, Chris, I'll ask you if you'll stick around at the end for our Patreon members. I want to ask you like your book recommendations and a couple other things for our folks over there. But before we get to that, um, if, if you were president, if you were secretary of defense, which I hope you will be one day, um, this is a tough question, but is there anything you feel we should be doing differently. Part of you know what the special operations community does is train uh, resistance, and there's a feeling right now among many in Ukraine that we're leaving them to fight it alone. You know, Zelensky keeps turning it up, saying we need a no-fly zone, we need MIGs, we need this, we need that, and there's a feeling among many Ukrainians that it's their fight alone. Is there anything that you think the president should be doing, uh, either either big picture or little little that could be really inspiring or galvanizing for those Ukrainians so they don't feel like they're fighting this alone? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And it, it's, um, you have to empathize with anybody at that senior level to think what, this, what's at stake, right? And if you're, I don't think we're de- dealing with an insane person. And I think it's to, it's to Putin's advantage to make us think he might be. Um, we've had presidents that have played the same game, right? Um, but if, the, if you're dealing with something you think, someone you think might be willing to take it to the next level and actually use sort of, uh, something in his nuclear arsenal, then you, you, have to, you, have to, you don't have to respect that decision, but you have to make that part of your calculus, right? So I think the no-fly... Uh, I, I think a lot of the decisions that have taken place are the right ones, right? Um, s- staying away from the, from the no-fly zone because, you know, that escalates very quickly. Uh, being thoughtful about how and what weapon systems we get in there because, again, that could escalate very quickly. Um, and continuing to push, push, push on what we were talking about earlier. How can I continue to help this asymmetric fight? And for now, it seems like it's, it's playing out. Um, if anything, I would uh, probably like to have seen even more pressure on uh, the the sanctions put pressuring you know Europeans and others that are still engaged uh, to say look you've got to you've got to ramp this up right just we, we've all got to suffer through this together we got to shut mm. up the pipes of course China would pick up some of that that slack but eventually you know that 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 would make Putin completely dependent on Xi for his exports if that was his only customer which I'm sure China would be happy to be. <laughs> yeah. But um, so anyway, there's a pressure there that, that I would like to see ramped up. But I do think, and you know, the, on the, the escalation side, um, I don't think, here's the one risk that I, I see there. I don't think you're going to drop like a 50 megaton bomb on Kiev. It just doesn't make any logical sense at all. But what if... Um, what if Putin used like the the lowest, and I'm not a, a nuke person, right? But the lowest yield thing in his arsenal, right? Mm-hmm. Which is classified, right? But you can take a guess at it. And a lot of people might know, not understand, like 
These aren't massive bombs, yep. right? Yep, we covered that at length with Joe Serencioni in our last episode. That's exactly what he laid out. You know, a, a smaller tactical nuke, if you will, that takes out a port or or sends a statement, right? It says this is the smallest nuke we can use to send a statement and may have a strategic value, may not, but but to show you can, right, right is, 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 is something. And, I, and I'm glad you said Putin's not insane because I think that's too easily thrown around in the media. People say he's crazy. He's unhinged. I, I think that is too dismissive of an enemy. And and I think, you know, respecting his his capability is something we have to do. So you do think that that's something that is, you know, Joe Serencione said it's a real possibility. It may not be likely, but it's a possibility. Right. Yeah. And I think it's real because if I was in his court advising him, I would say, look, you're not going to don't drop something big. That's insane because Moscow will disappear. Right. Uh, but if you if you if you want to do it, I would do it only to change the conversation around nuclear deterrence that's been going on for 60 years. Right, right. And if you can use a very low yield and convince the world that it's not wor- worth reacting to, you now have a different seat at the at the uh at that broader conversations that have been going on for generations, right? So the deterrence potentially the conversation shifts very quickly. Even if you just and Putin could say, look, you U.S., you dealt with the same thing of like weapons coming in across the border in Iraq or Afghanistan. I, I put a low yield nuke on this border crossing area where I know there's there's no population, but I wanted the fallout to close it off so people stop crossing back and forth. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Make up some story like that. Yeah. yeah. And even, you know, if it killed 20 people because it's out in the middle of nowhere, you still change the conversation because you're like, right. I use nukes. And you can't right, mess with them. Right, right. Chris, related, I don't, again, I don't, I don't know how much you can talk about, but one of the you know commonly understood special operations missions is to secure high-value things, right? And we talked with Serencione about the, um, the civilian nuke plants that could be potentially unsecure inside Ukraine. I think 15 of them. You know, there's talk of loose nukes. Um, can you talk about that as a special forces mission for the Ukrainian special forces or potentially? Potentially even NATO and maybe even U.S. forces somewhere else in the world. Can you talk as much as you're able? Can you talk about that part of the special operations mission that is probably uh, being at least game planned, if not executed at some level below the public's knowledge? I mean, best guess, and it's all it is, um, but a pretty strong assumption is there's a bunch of teams standing by with pretty specific uh operations that, that they'd be ready to execute and a series of sort of tripwires that would initiate a response like that. Um, you do that, you get into very serious territory, obviously, um, very quickly. So the tripwires would have to be at a serious global strategic level, but um, the, our, our ability to punch in there and, and do that, um, I'm sure is, is gamed out, ready to go at a very effective level um, and probably some some folks on standby all around the world to mm. do it. And unfortunately, it looks like it's it's de-escalating right now. So, so making that less likely. The hope would be on the backside of this, we learn lessons around how much exposure can we afford in that in that arena, right? Are there are there mm. will it drive conversations about improving the security and positioning of those those sorts of resources in other countries or in places like Ukraine? Chris, what's next? What do you think what do you think is going to happen next on the battlefield or what could happen next on the battlefield that folks may not be thinking about, may not be reading about, um, given your unique experience and, and insight? Um, how do you see potentially things unfolding in ways people might not anticipate? 
Um, you know, again, whatever, whatever I say here will certainly be proven wrong by Tuesday because yeah. you, you were right about the pandemic. So <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to come back and say here you're, you're better at predicting than most. Well, the um, you know, I grew up as a wrestler and um, the, any, I think whatever, this might be overanalyzing people, but I've, I've just come to believe between military and business and stuff. If you know someone's like if they were a serious athlete, what what sport they pursued will tell you a little bit about how they're how they're going to be in the business world or as a military mm-hmm. leader, et cetera. Um, like I, I never rode crew, but I've worked with a bunch of people that rode crew. If you ever, have you ever worked with a person that rode, rode crew seriously? You know, okay, this guy is our girl, like amazing at tolerance for pain. They're like these incredibly intense people. And whether they've rode in years or not, that's just their, still their approach to, to life, yeah. right? Uh, wrestling has its own sort of phenotype. Uh, you know, Putin was a very serious judo athlete. And that wires you, you know, I've wrestled with some judo guys and they're weird the way they approach the sport, <laughs> yeah. right? Because the whole idea of judo is I'm going to, wherever I'm putting pressure is not where I'm going to attack, right? And so mm. he sort of lived his life like that, right? Um, and so I don't think this went exactly like he thought it would, right? But I think he was applying pressure and will continue to in one area so that he can get something else moving, right? Um now that might be over analyzing the way the guy's brain work, but I, I think there's some truth to it. So my, my worst case scenario guess would be, um, and again, if I was in his court advising, I'd say, look, you gotta, you gotta slow things down. You gotta let people forget how bad that initial thing went, which everybody's short-term memory is pretty bad these days. Um, ho- hold some ground. And we want to get through two fighting seasons and whether that's we back off and we come up with some sort of agreement you know, I think we're in talks right now and it's going to escalate up and down. It's, it's going to go kinetic again and come back and forth. But you want to get into a position where the U.S. gets back into its next election cycle. And then you start negotiating point to point with with Trump if he runs again. And you could you could undermine the entire political system where they see you making decisions based on negotiating with someone that's running for president, not the person in the White House, which he would happily do. Um, I mean, RT today had a story about um you know, well, you, you Biden says Putin should get out. Therefore, we think Biden should get out and Trump should should re, uh, retake the office. Right. So just feeding into that narrative inside the United States. And so, you know, to, you know, this two years in, in conflict goes by pretty quickly. Right. And mm-hmm. I can imagine him dragging it out like that and, and putting himself on on new terms. Um, I, I, coupled I, with I, that could be they end up in this weird position somewhere in, in the country that. We, you know, back to that winning and losing question. We're like, well, did we win or lose? Because it seems like the people in that part of Ukraine actually want the occupation. And now we're, you know, we can't, we don't know what to make of it anymore. That is a brilliant breakdown. The judo thing is perfect. And I'm glad you raised that up because this conversation is happening at a time where Trump just this week asked Putin to release information on Hunter Biden. So Trump is now a player in this again. He's inserting himself again. Putin is going to take advantage of that. I've long said if I were Putin, I would just wait until, you know, the Republicans take back Congress. Trump becomes a factor again and you've got somebody you can deal with. Right. Live to fight another day with someone who would be more amenable to you for whatever reason. Let me ask you to go from that very high level to finish on a very on a, on a much lower level. You're also a, a father. Um, and, and I asked Biana Goladriga about this in a previous episode, and I think it was really helpful. Um, you know, war, you know, combat, how do you talk to your kids about this? For those of us that are trying to figure out how to talk to children about what we're seeing, 
Can you give us any, any thoughts on how you and, and your wife have approached talking to your children about this stuff? It's a, it's a great question. I, I'm not very good at it, if I'm being honest. Um, and I probably default to not, not having, not going deep with them on it. Um, in some ways, like, I, I don't think we give our kids enough of a childhood anymore. Right. And so you'll figure it out someday. Right. So I, I, I actually try to shield them from some of it. Um, just cause I don't think it, it matters much to my 11 year old or 13 year old. What, what happened in Kiev yesterday. Um, and I don't want them sitting up at night thinking about it. Uh, it's part of the beauty of where we've moved, right? You know, in, in you live in DC or a place like that, like it's all that you're exposed to constantly. You know, I like the fact that my, my kid's more worried about her softball practice or, mm. you know, bike riding this afternoon with some friends. And I don't know, that could prove to be naive, but I, I don't think it is. Um, and so when it does come up, which inevitably, you know, it does, I, I don't tie it back to personal experiences. You know, I avoid that at, at all costs, really, with the kids. So when they're adults and they want to sit around and have a beer and really reflect on that mm. stuff, I'll be ready to have those conversations. But for now, my goal is for my children is to let them be children. Mm. And in, in fairness to your family, they've spent a lot of time worrying about you over the last couple of decades. So if they can, you know, get a break from it, it's it's probably um, overdue and, and and welcome. But you are... Um, such a, an insightful voice, Chris. You're very humble, and and I continue to tell you that I think your voice is just one of the most critical um, on the national stage and in the national dialogue. And every time I get to talk to you, I learn so much, and our audience learns so much. So I'm grateful for your extensive service, of course, in uniform, but even more so your service out of uniform, where you continue to educate us and enlighten us and and help us stay ahead of the curve. So thank you for all you're doing. And thank you for joining us again in Independent Americans. I hope you'll come back again soon, my friend. Oh, you got it anytime. Great to see you. And thanks for what you're doing. And next time it'll be at the car club uh, and we can get back together and pick up where we left off. I love it. I still think I have maybe a little bit of that bourbon left. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man, we'll get to it. Stay vigilant, my friend. Everybody. Chris Fussell is the real deal. And I hope we can all get together and have a bourbon at the car club soon. And if you're having a drink this weekend, raise a glass to Chris Fussell. Check out our conversation from episode 50, March 12th, 2020, wherever you got this pod. It's really one of my favorites. It was the last live conversation we had before the pandemic hit. And then we did one a month later, our very first dispatches virtually on April 6, 2020. You can get more from Chris Fussell on combat, leadership, and life. And check out his 2015 bestseller, Team of Teams, New Rules for Engagement for a Complex World. And check out his 2017 bestseller, One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. It's linked in the show description as well. Chris Fussell is a true leader, and he's another true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there. In the darkest of times, the brightest helpers are rising to meet the challenge. And check out the hashtag Look for the Helpers on Twitter and share yours. Many of you have been doing it. Keep it up. I want to share that light and share that inspiration. 
And when you're on social, you can play guest to guest every Wednesday night. We did it this Wednesday. We'll do it every Wednesday. And be sure to go to independentamericans.us. If you never have already, you can see video from my conversation with Chris there. You can see every single conversation we've done in 160 episodes. And you can also watch all our recent episodes on Ukraine. If you're new to the show, you can go back and get a crash course on all the politics, the culture, the combat, the nukes of Ukraine. Conversations with Bianca Goladriga, Malcolm Nance, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Professor Jason Dempsey, Matt Gallagher, Quan Nguyen, Joe Serencione, and we'll have many more inside Ukraine in the days ahead. I'm lining them up, and they're going to be really, really powerful. We'll keep this focus on Ukraine until further notice. And we're going to continue to talk to analysts, politicians, fighters, leaders, and we'll support Ukraine in any way we can. And we'll keep and intensify our unique focus on national security, military operations, foreign policy, leadership, and much more to bring you independent content to help you meet this moment, stay ahead of the curve, and stay vigilant. So go to independentamericans.us. You can also get Independent Americans gear and support this show. And you can join our exclusive Patreon community, like our newest member, Charles Bates. What's up, Charles? Welcome to you. And a shout out to all our Patreon members. Thank you again for joining us for our Friday cocktail hour. We had a really great conversation and you will get exclusive content with Chris Fussell. I ask him for his book recommendation. I ask him about his favorite TV show and I ask him what we should see if you go to West Virginia. So check it out. All at independentamericans.us and our Patreon crew. And as always, please support us and go to the Apple Podcast Store. If you like this show, give us five stars. Be sure to subscribe for free. It's 100% free and share it. Share it with five people. Do us a solid. Help us keep spreading this good content and the righteous content. Righteous is continuing to bring you the five eyes and all our podcasts and everything we do. You know what that means. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And it's brought to you by the fantastic Righteous Media team. My deepest thanks to creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. And thanks, of course, to my wife and my amazing two boys. Never a dull moment, especially in the pandemic, which is still going on, because school was canceled for today, tomorrow, and the rest of the week due to a staffing shortage at our school related to COVID. Yes, that's apparently still a thing. If it's not where you are, it is where I am. And the pandemic may be over for most, but there are still some things we got to knock out here. So hang in there, get the shot if you still haven't and you can, and keep on chugging. Spring is supposed to be here soon, even though we got snow this week and a snow day, and summer is coming. But before that, the final four of March Madness is set. Mighty little St. Peter's unfortunately is out, but they made a hell of a run. And for the men, the final four is set. Number one, Villanova versus number two, Kansas. Number eight, North Carolina versus number two, Duke in an epic clash of two of the biggest rivals in sports. The women's final four, which is sometimes more exciting than the men. Number one, South Carolina versus number one, Louisville. And number one, Stanford versus number two, UConn. UConn is back. They did it again, led by a woman named Paige Bukers. She's an amazing player. If you haven't seen her, check it out. She's one that the world will definitely be talking about. And look, yes, the world is still talking about somebody else. Will Smith. Ugh, Will Smith at the Oscars. Okay, teachable moment maybe? That's what I'm thinking about. Maybe it's a teachable moment for all of us. In my view, Will Smith showed us all what a fake tough guy looks like. The real tough guys and gals are in Ukraine. But you didn't see much of a focus on Ukraine during the Oscars. Actor Sean Penn 
continues to do good work in combat zones and humanitarian disasters, and he's in Ukraine now. And before the Oscars, he said that the Oscars should have been boycotted if the ceremony's planners decided against having Zelensky on the program. I appreciated his message, and I appreciate that he continues to lead. And beneath the headlines of Will Smith, the Oscars didn't do much for Ukraine. They didn't have Zelensky. They didn't even really do a focus of any kind. And it was weak, very weak. There was a crypto commercial that ran a couple times that was more powerful and impactful than anything in the program. Sean Penn said he would melt down his Oscar if they didn't focus on Ukraine and have Zelensky there. So I guess Sean Penn better get that blowtorch ready. But the Oscars was all very strange and and troubling. And the Oscars almost found a way to be wilder than reality without even getting into the pandemic or Trump or Ukraine. And here's the biggest takeaway. Ukraine needs every weapon it can get right now. And that includes the full power of Hollywood. Hollywood could be a key in helping us, especially in getting the truth to the people inside Russia. We saw that with a very powerful message sent by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hollywood can help us break through and get to the people of Russia. And they can help us help Ukraine. It's a time for everyone to answer the call. Because America is still divided. But we and independent Americans and righteous media are working to change that. Adding light to contrast to heat. And if you're among the 42% of Americans who are independent and unaffiliated, this is your show. Republican, Democrat, whoever you are, if you're not a diehard partisan, this is your show. We invite all of you to join us and be a part of the solution. Please be sure to check out our other Righteous Media podcasts like The Firefighters with Rob Sarah and B-Dorm, which has a new episode dropping this Friday. You can subscribe to all of them for free wherever you got this pod and check out more at Righteous.us. And help us keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy here and worldwide and especially in Ukraine right now. And damn, does Ukraine have some hope. Our friend Matt Gallagher from recent episode 161 tweeted something tonight that I wanted to share with you. He tweeted, this made me smile and it'll do the same for you. It's a video of five Ukrainian soldiers in a bunker or something that looks like that dancing their asses off with reckless abandon and total joy. And they're dancing to this. It's called How Do You Do? And it's by Nightcore. And it's the Boom Kanakuli resource mix. Whatever that means. But it was posted initially by a guy called Mr. Ghostly on Twitter, who goes by Guardian underscore Mario at Twitter. And he wrote, vibes from Ukraine so strong, it should be illegal. And he plays this song and the video of these guys dancing. I'll link it in the show notes. And it's that kind of energy and hope that is all over Ukraine. It's that kind of energy and hope that's beating back Putin and his forces. And it's that kind of energy and hope that's inspiring and touching people worldwide. It's continuing to be more contagious than COVID. And it's that energy and hope that continues to spread. And that energy and hope we need to continue to support. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And that vigilance is thriving and spreading all across Ukraine and now all across the world. So we've got to stay vigilant. And no, you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. 
And we're all in this together, especially now. All across America, all across Ukraine, and all around the world, we are all in this together. From the young fighters and old fighters in Ukraine learning right now how to use an American-made, shoulder-fired anti-tank missile, to Gary Kasparov. From Sean Penn to Pantera. From Chris Fussell to all those inside Ukraine who are somehow finding a way to dance despite the war. To you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini. And stay vigilant, America. Powered by Righteous Media.